0: Listening to New Life the Fort, where the person of Jesus Christ and His love for you are shared. Wow, it is a privilege to be here. You know the word comfort. You know the Bible says the God, our God is the God of all comfort. Comfort, the fort has come. When you come here, you come to a fort. Our God is a fortress, and this is a fortress of new life that is in this place. And as we live here today, everywhere you go, the fort has come. Because church is not just a place we come. We carry church with us everywhere we go, and we are the church that goes and takes the God of comfort with us. So come on. I love new covenant reality. I love the fact that God has opened access to heaven freely for all men. And uh, we can access heaven whenever we want. I say it's a bit like me going to my dad's house. And whenever I go to my mom and dad's house, I can go to the kitchen and open the fridge and I can take out whatever I want because I'm a son in the house. And whenever my new covenant teaching reveals to me that I can access heaven And all of heaven's provision is mine. I can access my dad's fridge. I can open it up. I can take whatever I need. Isn't that beautiful? But the scripture says that if any man be in Christ, if any man has received a new covenant, he becomes a new creation. And the new creation revelation teaches me that in the new covenant, I can go to my dad's fridge. But as a new creation, I become a fridge. And I live on this earth as a walking, talking resource center of heaven on earth. And I've got heaven in me to give out. So you are a new life fort. You can access the fortress who is our God and you can find new life in him. But as you leave this place and you go into the world, you become a fortress of new life. Everywhere you go, you deposit new life with you. Because everywhere you go, the fort has come. And the God of comfort is with the people of Manila because of you. Hey, that's awesome. Come on. So it's a great privilege to be here, it's a delight to be here and uh, you have some amazing leaders and uh, they are worthy of all the applause and honour that you can give them and I believe you should appreciate them, just an amazing couple, really, bless you. Look I've come, I want to have one session with you today, I have one opportunity to do my very best to deposit the best truth that I can into your hearts and uh, so what I'm actually going to do is uh, I'm going to preach from the book that I wrote three years ago. I'm going to share with you a revelation that God gave me in 2009. My good friend here, Ryan, uh, owns a publishing company in Hong Kong and uh, gave me the honor of publishing through his label uh, in 2010. Uh, the book has just come out in the third edition. We don't even have these in Australia yet, mate. So you uh, you have these before we have them. So this is the book, it's called He Qualifies You. It is a very simple read. I minister to Australians and so you need to be simple. (laughs) You need to keep things simple when you speak with Australians. But um, there's a gentleman in Texas by the name of Andrew Farley. He wrote The Naked Gospel. Has anyone read The Naked Gospel? Some of you know that. He says that uh, this book is intelligent, challenging and important Read it and experience the freedom of God's grace like never before. Uh, the director of healing ministry at Bethel Church with Bill Johnson, uh, is a guy by the name of Chris Gore, and he says that he qualifies you is equipping believers all around the world to be released into their full identity in Christ. This weekend, this book comes to the Philippines, and it's my privilege to minister it to you. Uh, we have a hard copy edition, and we also produced a soft cover edition. I think these are selling for 300 each. But the soft cover, you can buy 10 for 300 and we've made them very cheap so we can take them to the provinces and and, uh, the poorer communities in the Philippines, we can give them out. I'm wondering whether anyone here has a birthday today. Someone here having a birthday, anyone? Over there, Jimmy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, brother. Enjoy. Okay, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Philippines, chapter three? <laughs> my son, I have three children. I'm 34, and um, I have three children. And my seven, six-year-old son, seven, said, "Jad, um, I hope you have fun speaking to the Philistines." I'm like, no, no, not the Philistines. <laughs> oh no. Anyway, never mind. We're going to read Philippians chapter 3 and the first 10 verses. It's Paul speaking and I'm going to highlight some things here and then we're going to go into the subject matter today. He starts in verse 1 of chapter 3 by saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the... Lord. It's no trouble for me to email the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. We rejoice in the Lord. We boast in the Lord. We should be a boastful community. Who boast in Jesus, come on. And who put no confidence in the flesh. The word flesh in the Greek is a little four letter word and it is sarks. And the word flesh or sarks can have different meanings. It can have different connotations depending on where it's used. But in this po- passage, Paul explains exactly what he means when he means the flesh. And he's about to list. Six or seven examples. But essentially, you can divide them into two main groups. When Paul says there are people who put their confidence in the flesh, essentially he means those who put their confidence in their family background and those who put their confidence in their pious behavior. Those who put their confidence in their pedigree and those who put their confidence in their performance. That's what he's about to say just now. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons, verse 4, for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is that? It's his pedigree. Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. That wasn't his choice. That was part of his family tradition. He was part of the Benjamite clan. He used to boast in his paternal background, his pedigree. Secondly, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted heretics, the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless, Paul said, in my previous way of life, before I met Jesus, I used to boast in two things. I used to boast in my flesh. And that means I used to boast in my pedigree and my performance. And he says there are still people who do that. But not me. He says this in the next verse. However, what were to my gains, I now consider Loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. In fact, I consider them garbage. How many of you have the King James Version? Maybe not. In the King James it says, I consider them poo." Why? That I may gain Christ. And be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. In Him. In Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. Come on. Paul said there are two groups of people. There are those who boast in the flesh. And he said, I used to be one of them. To boast in the flesh means to boast in your pedigree and your performance. But he said, since I've met Jesus, I consider my pedigree and my performance poo. The only thing that matters is my position in the person of Jesus. Now we need to ask ourselves a very intelligent and logical question. Why did this group of people believe that boasting in their pedigree and boasting in their performance was actually the right thing to do. They weren't being rebels. Paul thought that was a good thing. There was something about his upbringing. There was something about his lifestyle his indoctrination his teaching his education there was something about the culture he grew up in that taught him that your pedigree and your performance actually matters to God and that is what you boast in why did he think that and I believe the answer to that question is found as we understand God's three major covenants that he has made without kind throughout the history of the scriptures In the Bible, as you read the Scriptures, there are a number of covenants God makes. Some people say six, some people say seven. But there are three major ones. And they are represented by the three men who the New Testament teaches about more than any other men. The three Old Testament characters that are taught about in the Scriptures above any others. The first is a guy called Abram or Abraham. The second is a guy called Moses. And the third man is none other than Jesus. Abraham, Moses and Jesus, the reason that they are written about, taught about more than any other characters of the Old Testament is because they represent the three major covenants God has made to mankind throughout history. And my theory, my thesis, my presentation to you today is very simple. Under the Abrahamic covenant... God blessed his people only because of their pedigree. If you were a child of Abraham, you qualified for God's blessing, and so you boasted in your pedigree. Then Moses comes along, and things change. Now, your pedigree is no longer enough, what matters is your performance. And then Jesus comes along, and he, Pedigree, performance mean nothing. The only thing that qualifies you for the blessing of God is the fact that you are positioned permanently in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the scripture Paul can write and he can look back over history in Corinthians and he can say, listen, all of God's promises that he has made, no matter how many he's made, they are yes in Christ. Which means that if you are in Christ, those promises are yes in Christ to you, and your job is to say, Amen. amen. You say it with your lips, you stay it with your lifestyle, you push through adversity and challenges and the things that come your way, because you believe that I qualify for the promises of God, because Jesus did on my behalf, and I am positioned in Him. Amen. 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 Are you ready? I'm going to tell a story. Genesis chapter twelve. Benjamin read it this morning. God speaks to a man called Abram, and he says, "Mate, it, it's there in the Hebrew." Yeah. He says, "I will bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. I'll make your name great. Your blessing to the end of the world." Abraham fo- hears that voice and leaves his father's house. He follows that voice but not quite knowing who it was. You know what's really interesting to me is when you read Genesis 12 and 13 and 14, when God speaks to Abraham, Abram, he doesn't introduce himself. You know when you read the whole Bible and every time God comes to you, he says, I am the Lord, I am the God of. So he doesn't do that in chapter 12. He just comes and he just speaks which means Abram, who's a polytheist, okay, he's an Iraqi polytheist, he worshipped lots of different gods, and one day he hears a voice speak to him, and he follows that voice, not knowing quite who it is yet. It's not until the end of chapter 14, when a royal priest shows up, A guy called Melchizedek, who is king of Jerusalem and priest of God most high. He is not only a priest, he is a royal priest. And he comes to Abram in the Valley of the Kings and he brings out bread and wine, which is a symbol of the new covenant. And he says, Abram, you are being blessed by El Elyon, God most high, the one who created the heavens and the earth and delivered your enemies into your hand. And that is why the very next chapter, God speaks to Abram again. And it says there that God, that Abram believed God and he became righteous Abram had a relationship with God for three chapters, but he did not enter into a right relationship with God until he knew the name and nature of the God who was calling him. How many of you have come to Jesus? And as you look back over your past, you go, oh, before I bowed the knee to Jesus, it was God was leading me all those years. I just didn't know it. And Melchizedek is a royal priest. If you believe you are a royal priest in Christ today, your job is to reveal the name of God, the nature of God to people that God already loves and is already blessing and is already leading. Your job is to tell them, hey, the God that is on your side, his name is Jesus. And so Abram enters into a right relationship with God. Whoa, what an amazing story. Some people actually believe that Melchizedek, we know in the book of Hebrews, is a picture of Jesus. Some people believe he actually was. Jesus will go. You can talk about that over lunch. Okay. He comes to chapter 17. And as Benjamin shared with us today, God does a number of things in that chapter. First of all, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. The second thing he does, he says, listen, Abram, these blessings that I've given you are not just for you. They are for you and your descendants after you. Everything I promised you, the blessings, the land, the walking blameless in my presence, those things are blessings. They're not just for you. They are for your seed. And the next thing he does, (laughs) the next thing he does in chapter 17 is he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant. And it is the sign of circumcision. Now, what is the deal with that? (laughs) I think that's one of the greatest evidences we have to prove that the Bible is spirit-inspired because no man thought up that idea on his own. It's, it's only a man who's hearing voices that, that thought, yeah, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> no? He's 99. Okay, anyway. He says, I'm going to give you a sign. But listen, the word sign is the same word that he gives to Noah. When after the flood comes, he says, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant in the sky. Why was that there? It was a reminder of what God had promised. So when Noah's descendants would see a rainbow, they would remember what God had said. The same is true for Abraham. God didn't think, oh, I better do something to Abraham so I remember which one he is. God's not looking down from heaven thinking, oh, which shepherd was it that I promised to bless? No, 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 he didn't forget. He didn't want Abraham to forget. He didn't want Abraham's descendants to forget who they were and therefore what promises were theirs because of their pedigree. So he said, I'm going to give you a sign of this covenant so that every morning when Abraham's sons would wake up and they'd go out of their tent and find a tree <laughs> and they would, they would see something every day and that sign would be a reminder to them, ah, that's who I am. I am a child of Abraham and because I'm a child of Abraham, everything God promised my dad is mine. As you read on, Abram goes to Mount Moriah. He offers his son as a sacrifice, but God provides a ram in his place in chapter 24 and God swears. I irrevocably make an oath with you, mate. This promise is always going to be yours. And as you read the story of God's people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the boys, Joseph in Egypt, God blesses them and he blesses them and he blesses them and he doesn't bless them because they're moral. They are not moral people. He blesses them because they are Abraham's kids. That is all. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't punish. He blesses them because they are Abraham's kids. And so when you get to the end of Genesis, you come to the book of Exodus. And in the opening chapters of Exodus, God's people are now in slavery in Egypt. And it starts by saying, God heard the cries of his people. And he said, I'm going to send a man to rescue them. Now, why did God rescue them? God's looking down from heaven. And he sees millions of people in slavery all around the world. Millions of people in poverty. Millions of people being suffering, but he chooses one particular group of people to bless. Was it because they were moral people? Was it because they were worshippers of God? No. You read the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 14, and it says that when they were in Egypt, they used to worship the false gods of Egypt. When, when, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were still polytheist. They still worshipped lots of gods. So God didn't rescue them because they were great worshippers like us this morning. He tells them why he rescued them in Deuteronomy. He says, listen, guys, the reason I chose you was not because you're the biggest nation, not because you're the strongest, not because you're the richest, not because you're the best looking, not because you're great at sport, not because you do karaoke well. The only reason I chose you is because you are Abram's kids. And I remember the covenant I made with Abram. And so God chose them and he blessed them. He healed them in Egypt. He brought them out with silver and gold and he laden them with his blessings because they were Abraham's kids and that qualified them for God's blessing. This group of people come out of Egypt after a final plague. It's the plague of the firstborn, chapter 12. And we have the Passover. Lamb, Passover lamb, God says, I want you to put the blood over the door frames of your home and I want you to do this every year as a remembrance because that blood will be a sign. Now listen, (laughs) sorry, get this. God did not need a sign to remind him which one of his people lived in which house. God's not looking down from heaven and going, oh, I forgot where they lived. Was it number 12 or number 13? It says here in Exodus, he says, this will be a sign for you. Same word for circumcision. Same word for the rainbow. It is a remembrance that you are different. And the reason you are different, Israel, is because of your pedigree. Because you are Abram's kids. That is what makes you different. You see, the blood of the Passover lamb had nothing to do with forgiveness. If you read that story, there is nothing in that chapter about forgiveness, propitiation, justification, atonement, nothing like that. Because the law had not yet come. And Romans says that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Sin is not taken into account where there is no law. So the Passover lamb had nothing to do with forgiveness. The Passover lamb's blood was not the blood of the old covenant, which we'll get to in a moment. The Passover lamb's blood was simply a reminder that we are different because God has chosen our father. And that blessing continues, as Benjamin shared this morning, on Abram's natural kids to this very day. They come out of Egypt. They are laden with silver and gold. It's Exodus chapter 13. Miriam grabs a tambourine, sings a bit of a song, right? And then they come to chapter 14 and they come to the Red Sea. And do you know what God's people do? They complain. Do you know what God does? He opens up the sea for them. In the next chapter, they come to chapter 15 and they are thirsty. And what do they do? They grumble and they complain. And God makes the water sweet for them. In the next chapter, they get hungry. This is a couple of weeks now after Egypt. They get hungry. And rather than going to God and asking Him politely for food, hey guys, God's been really good to us. Let's go and ask nicely. Can we please have some food? <laughs> nah. What do they do? They complain. They grumble. They blame Moses and they even threaten to stone Moses to death. What does God do? He sends food from heaven for them. In fact, an amazing thing happens in chapter 16. Not only does he send food, but he gives them a little test. He says, listen, I want you to only collect it on six days and on the seventh day, I want you not to go out, rest, store some overnight, don't go out on the seventh day. And do you know what the people do? (laughs) They go out on the seventh day. They store stuff overnight. And do you know what God does when they break the Sabbath? He just sends food the next day. The next chapter, they complain again about their water. This is chapter 17 now. They complain again and Moses taps a rock. Water comes out and God meets their need yet again. Again, my friends, God is not blessing them because of their behavior. God is not blessing them because of their good attitude. God is not blessing them because of their thankful hearts. God is blessing them just because they're Abraham's kids. He's being merciful to them and he's being faithful to the promise he made to their dad. He didn't say to Abraham, I'll bless you if you behave. I said, I will bless you. I make an irrevocable covenant with you and your descendants after you. And that's why he is blessing them because their pedigree qualifies them. But in Exodus 17, an amazing turning of events happens. We don't really find out about this until Psalm 95, and the book of Hebrews brings it out as well. But in Exodus 17, it says that for the first time, they hardened their hearts toward God. And so God brings them to a mountain in chapter 19 called Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain and he says, Listen, mate, I want you to tell the people something. You have seen how I have carried you out of Egypt on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. But from now on, you will be my treasured possession only if you obey me. Moses comes down the mountain and he says, hey, this is what God said, that, that we will be his treasured possession and his a priesthood for him, but only if we do every single thing he tells us to do. What do you think? And the people say, no worries. They say, we will do everything God ever tells us to do, always. Now this is the same group of people that couldn't even pick up bread properly, two chapters earlier. They are not an obedient people. They are not trusting in the goodness of God. They've become self-righteous and they are trusting in their own ability to obey. They say, yeah, 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 yeah. We will base our whole relationship with God on the merits of our obedience. No worries. So in Exodus chapter 20, God thunders the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. They say, oh, this is a bit hectic. Moses, go on and talk to God for us. Moses goes (laughs) up the mountain and he gets more instructions. He comes back down in chapter 24. This is amazing. And he says in chapter 24, he speaks the words of the law. And he says, listen, if you obey, God will bless us. But if you disobey, God will curse us. And the people say, yes, we agree. (laughs) Then he kills a bull. He sacrifices a bull. And he reads the law from the book of the covenant. And he reads it. This is now the second time they're hearing the law. Let everything be established in the presence of Two or three witnesses. He is establishing this. He reads it to them and he's, and then they respond again. And they say, yes, everything God says we will do. He takes the blood from the altar and he sprinkles it on the people. And he said, listen, this isn't a handshake deal. This is a blood oath now. You are under a covenant where God will bless you if you obey. But if you disobey, he'll curse you. You are bound by blood. He sprinkles the blood of the people on the people. This is the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant. And then God says, Moses, come back up to me. So Moses comes up the mountain again and he takes 40 elders with him, or 70. 70. He takes some old guys, right? (laughs) They climb up the mountain and they get to the top and it says they eat with God and they see a vision of his feet like sapphire on the emerald sea. And then they come back down. How long does it take an 80-year-old man to walk up a mountain? I'm going to suggest to you it takes a whole day to get up there and a whole day to get back. Then what happens is God says to Moses, listen, I want you to bring Josh with you. Come back up with Joshua. So he goes back up the mountain and they stop halfway for six days. And then God says, Moses, come into the cloud. On the seventh day, Moses goes into the cloud and he is there with God for 40 days. And 40 nights. Get this. He sprinkles blood on the people. The blood of the covenant. Two days he comes back. Seven days. That equals two plus seven. Nine days. Then he's in the cloud for 40. This is now 49 days since he sprinkled the blood. 49 is seven times seven. It's seven completed weeks. On the 50th day, God puts the tablets in his hands. And as soon as God puts the tablets in his hands, he says, Now listen, Moses down there, your people are worshipping a golden calf and I am going to kill them. Moses had no idea that was going on. He was up the mountain enjoying Jesus' festival, right? (laughs) He's he's having glory encounters with God. And all of a sudden he said, now you're going to kill. And Moses says, no, 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 God, you can't do that. They are Abraham's kids. When you read the book of Galatians, you find out that even though the law covenant came, Paul says the Abrahamic covenant still existed. Whatever. Okay, so God and Moses says, no, 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 you can't kill them. Moses comes down the mountain. He has the Ten Commandments. He sees the people worshipping a golden calf and he breaks all the Ten Commandments. He's the first man in history to break all commandments at once. He breaks the Ten Commandments. And he, says, and he says, Aaron, did you do this? And Aaron's like, no. We just threw our gold in the, the fire and abracadabra, you know. <laughs> and Moses says, now listen, if you are for the Lord, come to me. And who rallies to Moses? Aaron, the biggest hypocrite of the lot of them. The one who led them into idol worship, the one who lied about it. He runs up to Moses and says, yeah, we're on your side, mate. bro. They take swords and Moses says, now go through the camp and kill your brothers. And on that day, they take swords. They run through the camp. They spear their brothers to death. They cut their heads off. They kill 3,000 of their own family. They come back to Moses. They've got blood all over them. They've got swords with sweat and hair and pieces of flesh. And God says, you guys will make great priests. You want to condemn your brothers? You want to have blood on your hands? You want to be hypocrites and blame other people for the very thing you do? You're going to represent the old covenant. How? I tell you what, there are Christians around the world that think their ministry is a ministry of condemnation to convict their brothers on the very same things they do. Our priesthood is of Melchizedek that reveals the name and nature of God to people who he loves and who he blesses. Anyway, whatever. Okay. Okay. Too much for one day. 3,000 people die in a day. Why did they die? Because they worshipped a golden calf. Did they used to worship false gods in Egypt? But Moses goes back up the mountain. He gets new stone tablets. And over a period of however many weeks they enter into a building project, on the seventh week, after seven weeks, the glory cloud of God comes on the tabernacle. Trumpets are blown in Numbers 11, 10. And the people move on toward the promised land. Within three days of traveling, how many of you can guess what they did? They grumbled. And because they grumbled, God sent a fire from heaven and killed a bunch of them. In the next chapter, Numbers 12, Miriam murmurs against Moses. And it says there in Numbers 12, God spat in her face and she got leprosy. In chapter 13 and 14, Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan. Two of them come back with a good report, but 10 of them come back with a bad report and God kills them. In chapter 15, they find a man who's collecting firewood on the Sabbath. They bring him to Moses. They say, Moses, this guy's picking up sticks and it's not day one to six. (laughs) We're betwixt. What do we do? Moses goes to God and God said, he broke my Sabbath, kill him. In chapter 16, there's a man called Korah, and Korah is a leader in the community. He incites 250 other leaders to to rebel against Moses. Because they rebelled against Moses, God opens up the ground, swallows them alive, and burns them to death. The rest of the Israelites come to Moses and say, Moses, this is your fault. And because they blamed Moses... That day, 14,700 of them were put to death in a single day because they blamed Moses for what was happening. Ladies and gentlemen, what is God's problem? Do you think he has a multiple personality disorder? Is he a little moody? Does God have PMT? Over here, on this side of the mountain, when they whinge and whine and they complain, God blesses them. Over here, every time they do something wrong, he brings judgment and curse and punishment. Over here, they worship false gods. God rescues them and gives them gold and silver. Over here, they worship false gods. God kills them. Over this side of the mountain, they break the Sabbath. God keeps providing for them. On this side of the mountain, they break the Sabbath. God executes them. On this side of the mountain, they complain about their food and water. They grumble against their leaders and God keeps providing for them every single day. On this side of the mountain, they complain against their leaders. God opens up the ground, swallows them alive, burns them to death and spits in their face. Has God changed? Does God ever change? Now listen, have the people changed? The people are exactly the same. They're still Abraham's kids and they're still behaving the same way. The only thing that changed was at Mount Sinai, they came into a new form of relationship, a covenant that you and I called the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where their whole relationship with God was dependent on their performance. And when they disobeyed, God would curse them. God has not changed. He's, also, he's always had the ability to express wrath and anger. Because he said that to Abram. He said, mate, if anyone curses you, I will curse them. Yeah. Now under the old covenant, God's people become his enemies. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, the story of God's people for 14 centuries, their relationship with God is up and down, up and down, up and down. When they obey, he blesses them. When they disobey, he curses them. They have a good king, a bad king, a good king, a bad king. Then eventually they are so disobedient, he hands them over to devastation, defeat, doom, death, and destruction. And in Jeremiah 2, he says, I even divorce myself from you because you have broken our covenant. And then one day, Angels come. And angels say, We have good news of great comfort and joy. Because today there is born to you a Savior in the town of David. For 33 years, Jesus walked the planet. He manifested the name and nature of his father like a royal priest, Melchizedek. He showed us what our dad is like. He walks by the Jordan River and his cousin there is there, John the baptizer. And John says, look at that. Look, look, look. That is the Lamb of God and he takes away the sin of the world. In the old covenant, the lambs would just alleviate God's wrath until the next time you did something wrong, temporarily. But this lamb would take away the sins, not take away God's judgment only, take away sin from the whole world. And John also pointed to Jesus and said, listen, that is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. John is baptizing people in water. And they are coming up out of the water with water coming out their ears, water coming out their nose, water all over their head. And John says, what I'm doing to you with water, he will do with the Holy Spirit. You see, the only reason that we can enter heaven is because Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. But the reason that we can experience heaven on the earth and the reason that we can enforce heaven and the reason that we can effect heaven it's because he, the same one that takes away our sin is the one who clothes us with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sits down at 33 years of age and he has a lamb roast with his mates. The Passover. A festival where they remember how gracious God was when he saved us when we didn't deserve it. And he takes a cup and he says, Gentlemen, this cup is the blood of a new covenant. Hey. You guys have had covenants before. You understand Abraham. That's what we're celebrating tonight. The covenant of Abraham. God blesses us because of our pedigree. You understand the Mosaic covenant. That God blesses you because of your performance. But tonight he said, I'm introducing a new covenant. A whole new form of relationship with God is about to come about. And of course they had no idea what he meant. Jesus goes to the cross. And on the cross he says about seven things. I love the number seven Yeah. He says seven things, but one of the last things he says as he breathes his last is he cries out with a loud voice. The Greek word is mega. He cries out with a mega voice, and he says, It is, it is. Whoa. Now what finished? <laughs> you can imagine all the reporters there <laughs> taking notes. Don't die yet, tell us what finished. <laughs> what do you mean? Because listen, Jesus' work hadn't yet finished. He still had to die. He still had to be buried. He still had to preach to the spirits in dungeons. He still had to rise from the dead, lead captives in its train sprinkle the heavenly utensils. He still had to sit at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and come again for his bride. Jesus had a lot more things to do. So what did he mean when he said, it is Finished. The moment he said those words, something happened in a temple. A curtain was torn from heaven to earth. The finishing of this old covenant era where the only thing that would earn you the access to the presence of God was your pedigree and your position. It was finished. That form of relationship was done. And a whole new arrangement had come about on the earth. The old covenant era had was over and a whole new covenant and a whole new community was birthed because in Jesus' death they pierced his side and out of his side flowed blood and water. Blood and water is a sign of birth. Ladies, we all know that that's what flows when you have a baby. When the first Adam in the Garden of Eden had He had his bride birthed from his side, Eve, on the cross. Jesus gave birth to a community. Jesus gave birth to his bride and the church was born at the cross. And then 50 days later, 50 days after the blood was shed, Acts chapter 2 came about. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound like of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there came what appeared on them, tongues of fire. How many of you grew up with a a children's Bible and it had a picture of a little flame on people's heads? That is not what happened. In Acts chapter 2, it does not say that fire appeared on their heads. It said fire appeared on them. John the Baptist said, what is happening to you with water will happen to you with fire. What the people saw that day was from the soles of their feet to the top of their head, they were covered in the fire of God. It is now the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, since the blood of Jesus was shed. Under the old covenant on the 50th day, the swords of the brothers condemned their own brothers to death. On the 50th day of the new covenant, Peter preaches and the sword of God's word pierces their hearts and they say, what must we do to be saved? On the 50th day after the Old Covenant was shed, the fire of God's wrath burned in judgment against His people. On the 50th day after the New Covenant blood was shed, the fire of God's love and passion and empowerment came on His people. On the 50th day after the Old Covenant blood was shed, 3,000 people died on the 50th day following the New Covenant blood. 3,000 people were saved and a whole new era began. Oh, give Him a shout. Come on. And the good news of the gospel is that when you believe in Jesus, in Jesus, you are clothed in him. You are covered in him. You are hidden in him. And therefore, all of God's promises that Jesus qualifies for are yours. Because Jesus has the perfect pedigree. He is God's son. And in fact, not only that, but he is the seed of Abraham. Galatians says, listen, listen, listen. God said, I will bless you and your seed. And there is truth that that means God will bless Abram and his natural seed, like sands on the seashore. But Paul says, ultimately, what God was actually saying was that I will bless you and your seed, singular. And that seed is Jesus. And so if you are in Jesus, all the Abrahamic promises are his and all the Abrahamic promises are yours. And you are like the stars in the universe. All the pedigree-based promises are yours. So when you read Genesis 12 and it says, I'll bless you, make you a blessing. Your name will be great. You will bless the families of the earth. I say yes, because Jesus qualifies. Therefore, I qualify as well. But there's more than that all the performance-based promises of the Mosaic Covenant, Jesus qualifies for them as well because he was perfectly sinless and obeyed every dot of the law. He satisfied perfectly the judgment of every disobedience and he satisfied perfectly every obedience to the law. So Jesus qualifies for every blessing of the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 28 I'll bless you in the city, bless you in the country, bless you in your going, bless you in your coming. The vine of your, your fruit and your vats will overflow. All that, the, the womb of your livestock, all that. They are promises. They are yes, not because we obey. They are yes to Jesus because he obeyed and because I am in him they are yes to me. All God's promises are yes in Christ. And in the new covenant, there are a whole lot of promises that become mine as well. God promises to blot out your sin and never, ever, ever, ever remember them again. He said, listen, this is an everlasting covenant. This Mosaic covenant was temporary. It was just a temporary thing that I didn't actually want to happen. I don't delight in the sufferings of bulls and goats. That thing doesn't flick my switch. (laughs) But it exposed the self-righteousness of my people. This new covenant is an everlasting covenant and all those promises are yes to you as well. My friends, I want to present something to you today very simply as we close. Paul says there are two groups of people on this planet. There are those who have confidence in the flesh. They boast in their pedigree. And they boast in their performance because they believe somehow that that matters to God. And the reason that they do that is because that is the history of God's people. But my friends, a whole new era has come where pedigree and performance are poo. And the only thing worth boasting is in is Jesus the perfect person and the fact that I am positioned in him. So all that is lost. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a Catholic family, a Hindi family, a Buddhist family, an atheist family. You might be the son or the daughter of a Pentecostal preacher. Your pedigree does not count in your standing with God. The only thing that counts is Jesus' perfect pedigree that is yours when you believe in him. And when you fluctuate in your performance, when you have a good week and a bad week and a good week and a bad week, you approach God with confidence, because Jesus has never had a bad week. He has always had a good week and I am in Him. And so I boast in my position in Christ. Come on. I boast because I am found in Him, secure in the perfect person of Jesus Christ. And so we boast and we have confidence in the Lord. Again, I say to you, rejoice in the Lord. Why don't you stand your feet and let's give him a shout and rejoice that we are in him today and that he is in us? Let's give him a shout. Come on. Hey! Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at newlifethefort.com.